0: following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Right, Let us open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter nine, is where we're going to be this morning. Um, you know, we've been in the in the minor prophets. What a great series that was been for our church. I don't know how it's been for your soul. It has been, it was fantastic for mine, <clears throat> and just a sense of God in the church as we uh, were able to preach this. Interestingly enough, uh, a dear friend of mine in Minneapolis, some of you know Rick Gamache. Uh Rick is our, uh, he was our dear friend in Minneapolis, um, and this week I was on a Zoom call with our regional pastors having some conversation about what God's doing in their churches, and, and Rick just said, uh, yeah, he said, you know, we just finished a series on the minor prophets, and it's been really good for our church, and I was like, you did what? I said, how, "How did you do that? Did you like, you know, take a few weeks in each prophet?" He goes, "No, man. We tried to do one prophet a Sunday." And I said, "We we just did that, you know." I said, "How was it?" He goes, "Hard." I said, "Yes, it was really hard." And so it was so cool to hear the stories of what God's doing in their church through that series, and knowing and hearing from you what God did in our church. It's just a joy. So the Sunday we're going to be in a in a major prophet. That doesn't mean he's any more important than the other prophets. But we're going to look at, he's he's major because his book is longer, and it's Isaiah. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. The next couple weeks, we're just going to spend our time talking about Christmas. Um, my family knows that next to baseball season, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year for me. Um, there will be times on the baseball field I will be singing, It's the most wonderful time. And it's April, right? I mean, you know... Uh, and so people go, dude, it's not Christmas yet. I go, well, for you, it may not be for me. It is this Christmas season. Right. Um, but during Christmas, I mean, the joy in people is really palpable, isn't it? I mean, you just walk around unless you go to Walmart on Black Friday, (laughs) that's not very joyful, right? Or Toys R Us. You ever try to go to Toys R Us on a Black Friday? Don't demons live there. It's a bad thing, right? I mean, it's really, really awful. Um, the excitement building toward December 25th is exciting. I mean, you know. uh, You know, every, you know, so often as Jill's getting our, our gifts wrapped, she's putting them under the tree and the kids, you can kind of see the kids kind of all huddle around and, uh, she started this new thing a few years ago where, uh, the kids would always look at their gifts and like try to figure, you know, they do the thing, you know, shake and figure out what's going to, and so she decided that ain't going to happen anymore. So she comes up with a numbering system. She puts numbers on each of the gifts. And so none of the kids know who their, what their gifts are, right? I mean, it's a fantastic idea, but she has to do it for her husband as well. She's kind of embarrassing. And so, uh, so she's already thinking ahead to 2023. She's already got a rubric for 2023 laid out. And I mean, it's crazy. The excitement is so exhilarating. And then you got the food at this time of the year. I mean, the, you know, somebody said to me yesterday, yeah, it's a great excuse to just put on an extra five to 10 pounds. You know, I mean, uh, and then people bring around those like chocolate, you know, those chocolate covered peanut butter balls. You guys ever eaten those? What are those? I mean, what is in those things to make you like, You lose your mind over those things. They're so good, right? And then, you know, you can actually go to Costco and like buy this five gallon bucket of this like dark chocolate peanut butter bark. I mean, what it, I mean, who, how do you want to harm your family? Like, it's so good you can't stop eating it. It's like, what is this stuff? It's just, I mean, this, it's a great time of the year, right? And it's a great time as well families get together. For some, that's a good thing. Some, it's not a good thing. You know, I mean, some of you are looking forward to family coming in. Some of you are looking forward to family going away. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's just a great time. But but there is something about this time of the year that is unique, um, and it's it's kind of the cultural norm. It's okay to talk about the gospel. It's okay to hear songs singing, and you know, yeah, it's it's generally tolerated. You know, somewhat in some places, um, it's readily accepted. <clears throat> People will tolerate that kind of stuff. You're going to find. Ne- like next weekend, best weekend of the year to invite friends and family to come to church. It truly really is. They're, they're more open to it. It's similar to that in Easter time. People will come at Easter, and they love to be at church on, on Easter and Christmas weekend. Great opportunity for them to hear the gospel. People generally tolerate that kind of stuff. And so, what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is just spend our time enjoying Christmas as a church, right? And again, th- you know, um, you guys know me well enough to know there's nothing profound in what we're going to talk about. We're gonna we're gonna rejoice again. In Jesus coming for us. Right? The cool thing about our church, if you're new to us, this is what we do regularly. We, we want to see Christ on every page of scripture, and we want to rejoice in the grace of God who's come for us. Don't we? And, and so this Christmas season, we're just going to take some time to look at the birth of Jesus in particular. And this Sunday, we're going to look at the, the full, the prophecy of Isaiah 9 being fulfilled. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the incarnation of Christ, the God becoming flesh. Dave referenced it, that it is indeed the greatest miracle ever to happen in the universe that God became man and has dwelt among us. And so we're going to look at that next Sunday. <clears throat> but this Sunday we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. So stand with me. We're going to read Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. <clears throat> Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the reading of God's word. May he bless the preaching of his word and open our eyes and ears to the wonders of Christ. Thank you. you may be seated. you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. So just look at a point number one. With this, that's where we're going to start this morning um, because we're kind of landing in Isaiah 9. And we need to understand a little bit about this book of Isaiah that we're in. Um, Isaiah the prophet was a very interesting Bible character. He was a well-to-do aristocrat. He was from a, wel- a very wealthy family. Um, he was unusual. He was one of those guys that lived in an ivory tower, but he didn't act like it. He loved the people of Israel, and he loved his nation, and he was deeply burdened for the people around him and what he saw going on. Maybe not unlike some of you as you walk this world and you wonder, wow, what is going on in our world? Things just seem so crazy. He lived early in his life in the time of great prosperity under the king, the reign of King Uzziah, who was a, just a faithful, godly man who brought unusual prosperity and peace to the nation of Israel. But the proverbial writing was on the wall because Israel had a serious problem with idolatry. Every time that they seemed to flourish, Israel would leave behind the God who allowed them to flourish. As we studied in our Minor Prophets series, we noticed something, didn't we, about the people of God in the Old Testament, is every time they flourished or God brought prosperity, they always forgot God. They would leave Him behind. They would go worship these false idols. They would uh, intermarry with people from foreign lands who worshipped different gods, and it brought in all sorts of idol worship into their nation, and they would leave behind the God who gave them the ability to flourish. And that's exactly what was happening in Isaiah's time. And the Lord allowed Isaiah to see it. And he allowed him to see it in his people, but he also allowed to see what was coming. It's intriguing. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is one of those interesting books of the Bible that has just these quintessential classic texts that we refer to often. You have Isaiah 53 where it talks about the suffering servant of Jesus coming and giving his life for us as a ransom for us. You have Isaiah chapter 7 that talks about the the virgin will give birth to a son. You have Isaiah 9 that we just read. Speaking of this prophecy to come of this king to come, but you also have my favorite text next to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah is Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, you've got this moment where you notice it says in the year of King Uzziah's death, the Lord gave you, gave Isaiah a vision. He gave him a vision of God. He let him look into the throne room for a moment and see that this God was high and he was lifted up and he, and he says the angels are flying all around and they're declaring, With loud voices, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And God gives him this lofty vision of God. In the middle of that lofty vision of God, Isaiah takes his eyes off of the vision of God and looks at his own life. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. I think it's fascinating, isn't it, that God gives him this vision of grand, of grand holiness of God and then Isaiah picks out the teeniest little sins that you and I might not think are a big deal, his words, what comes off his lips, as if those are what's cursing him. Revealing that the bigger we get of an understanding of the holiness of God, the more we do see our own sin. And he notices he's not only just sees his own sin, he sees the sin of his people. That he's around. And it's in that moment in verse 8 that the Lord basically does something. He calls Isaiah out. He says to him, Isaiah, it's true. You, you live among a people of unclean lips. You are a man of unclean lips. Who is going to go tell the people about this? And who's going to be a mouthpiece for me? And Isaiah, in a sense, raises his hand to say, I, I'll go, Lord, send me. I'll, I'll be the one to go proclaim this. But God gives him a fascinating warning. Sure, you can do that. You will be my mouthpiece, but guess what? The people aren't going to respond. Now, just for a moment, imagine that you're going to go to the coffee shop, and you know you have the privilege, or this weekend, coming weekend, you have family and friends over that are non-Christians, and you know that you're going to get the opportunity to share the gospel with one of them. And before you get into that, the Lord just whispers into your ear, you're going to share it with them? They're not going to listen. I know what most of us would do. What's the point? Why do we need to share it? What do we need to say? Well, that's really funny, God. But that's exactly the calling that God gave Isaiah. You're going to preach, but the people are not going to respond. Their ears will become deaf, their eyes blind. They will be dull of understanding. They won't get it. They will not respond. But he also tells him they won't respond until something happens. And he says, until their cities are laid waste, and the Lord will remove them far away. I know how many of you love this nation. You love what God has done through our history in our just over 250 years of life as a nation. You might ask yourself some questions about this text in particular. Imagine God telling you, go preach to these people, which He's already told you to do. But imagine Him telling you they're not going to listen, but they're not going to listen until America is laid waste and done. Imagine how hard that would be. This is the God of the universe calling Isaiah to go represent him, to stand before his people, tell them to turn to God and from their sin, and they're not going to listen until their cities are desolate and the people were carried away to a foreign land. Now, what we know about this from the minor prophets is we know this actually happened. I mean, can you imagine the shock? Imagine the shock, the nation that he loves, the God whom he has called to serve, the fear of what is Coming, and you can see at the top of this verse, how long, oh Lord? You can feel this, like, Lord, how long are they not going to listen? This isn't right. And God says, well, they're not going to listen until their cities are laid waste and they're exiled to a foreign land. And throughout Isaiah's prophecy and prophetic book, he proclaimed to a people who were exiled to a foreign land. There's some indicators that from chapter six and seven all the way to chapter nine and that period time period is when Assyria came in and begin to exile the people out so it's almost like Isaiah is prophesying to a group of people who are either are exiled are in the process of being exiled or just before when that army is right on their border waiting to come in and God called him to plead with them at that time to to plead that they would turn back to God and it's during this time frame that he did plead He did write these words, and he pleaded with them to turn to the Lord and turn back to the Lord. And as we saw, the Assyrians did come in and lay waste to this capital. Now, I want you to think about this moment for a second. Imagine how dark this time would be. Imagine how gloomy this would be. Imagine how hopeless this would feel. You're just coming off this vision of Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. God gives you a calling to go proclaim his word to your people that you love, and God stops you dead in your tracks in the presence of God to say, yes, you will go preach to these people, but they won't listen, and they're not going to listen until something bad's going to happen to the land that you love. Now, the way I visualize these moments in the book of Isaiah is you've seen some of the still pictures, the black and white photos of when Germany invaded Poland, and they begin to just take people out and put them on those train cars. And you had those open train cars just fuddling, just going through Poland all the way back into Germany or all the, till the concentration camps. Those people not knowing they're heading to their death. And you can feel when you look at those photos as men and women, moms and dads, children are being separated from their kids. You can feel the hopelessness and the despair. That's how it feels when you understand the backdrop of Isaiah's word that God gave him. It's a moment that was dark. It was hopeless. It was it just felt like what what is coming? What has happened? What is what has come? And yet it's in the middle of that time that God gave Isaiah nine. It's in the middle of that time that God gave Isaiah seven. That the virgin's gonna give birth to a son. Isaiah nine, that there's gonna be a son coming, a king, who's gonna have the government resting on his shoulders, and he will. Bring a kingdom that will never end. It's in the middle of such a depressing, gut-wrenching time that God intervenes with hope. He intervenes with light. Isaiah had a calling. It was to call Israel back to her God. He was like a prosecuting attorney bringing charges against God's people to say, you have failed your God, and because you've failed your God, disaster is coming, and he's warning them of the disaster to come. But when disaster did come, what you don't find is Isaiah standing out front of a streetcar with a sign that says, I told you so. Instead, what you hear from God giving to Isaiah is this, in the midst of darkness, there is light. In the midst of hopelessness, there is hope. Which, listen, this should stir something in you. It's really helpful to us to understand what God does in Scripture. You're going to notice in the opening pages of the Bible that we are confronted with Potentially, and probably so, the darkest time in human history when Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God, disobeyed God, and brought us all down with their sin. And in their sin, we sinned as well. But right in the middle of that moment of hopelessness and all the curses God brought with that, God brings a promise of a Savior. In Genesis 3, we read about this Savior to come who is going to crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. And at that moment, during darkness, God gave hope. What's interesting is this is what you see throughout the Bible. We just saw it in Isaiah as an example. We also see in the book of Romans, when Paul, in the middle of the Roman Empire, all the persecution happening from the Jewish folks who rebelled against Christ and the Roman Empire who was trying to, to pr- imprison Christ and, and Paul and keep him from sharing the gospel, we see Paul at the end of his book say this, The night is far gone, but the day is at hand. You can you can feel this, right? And then you get to the 1500s in a time called the Dark Ages, and we are intervened with this thing called the Great Reformation, and the Reformers had a battle cry that said this, After darkness, light. See, you you see it all throughout History, God has always intervened and always intruded into the darkness with light. He's always intervened in the moments of hopelessness to say, don't forget there is hope on the horizon. What good news for you? What good news for us? See, your marriage may not be in great shape, but it may be in a dark place. But there is hope in the light of Christ. Christ. Your life might seem small, insignificant, a little discouraging, but there is hope in Christ. What good news for us today when you look around your world and you think, how hopeless is this? How dark does this seem? And what God reminds us is, now listen, a baby in a manger has already come. The light of the world has shown his light into darkness. God has always intervened, always intruded into the darkness with light, which leads us very well into our second point, which is Isaiah's prophecy of light. And We see this in the verses that we read in Isaiah chapter 9. See, here are the people of Israel and Judah. More than likely, they are many are already in Assyria. Some are on the, if you will, the proverbial trains or chariots into Assyria, wondering if things will ever be the same. Are we ever going back? Will our cities ever be restored? Does God have a plan to restore us? Does God have the plan to rescue us? Not just a plan, not an optional plan, but does God have the plan to get us out of this place? And Isaiah's words are remarkably clear to these people in this place. God will indeed save his people. But notice how big the notice the breadth of Isaiah's prophecy to us. To us. To us. to us, a son is born. To us, a child is given. God will not leave us, His people, alone. God will bring hope to us, His people. A child is born. A son is given to us. And this child and this son is not just any child or any son. It means a son will be a gift to us. Or to put these words together, it's a son in the form of a gift. He's a gift to us child a son given to us and this son will have the government resting upon his shoulders you'll notice there's it was we're talking about later there's no chaos in this kingdom of christ it's resting on his shoulders and he is completely comfortable with it. meaning he's got the whole world in his hands or better yet he's got every governmental sphere of every universal governmental sphere on his shoulders but this government doesn't just rest on his shoulders, his government and this government he has will increase upon his shoulders and it will never stop growing. Meaning this child who is born to us, this son who is given to us will inaugurate an unstoppable kingdom that will increase in its scope and its peace and its righteousness and its justice. It will happen the moment he arrives. You got to notice then, look at the qualities of this, this child, this gift child, who's this. Son, We're told that he is the wonderful counselor. Now, when we think of wonderful, we think, oh, that's so wonderful. You know, like, that's really sweet. That's really kind. This word wonderful means supernatural. It means beyond the norm of the humanly realm. He is the supernatural counselor with supernatural wisdom and supernatural ability and power to care for his people. He is the mighty God which indicates he has the power to save and the power to rescue his people. Now, when you think of the word power, you got to think of two terms, two ideas of power. You've got authority, and you have strength. And wrapped up in this mighty God idea with the ability to rescue and save is the authority to save and the power to rescue. And he's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father telling us that this child from eternity past that he's going to be not just from eternity past, he's going to be to eternity future. And he will eternally be with his people. He'll be like a father to his people, comforting them, caring for them, serving them, coming around them, delicately catching every tear of theirs in a bottle because he loves them and he's gentle with them. And he's the Prince of Peace, which, which would give these people... Can you imagine? This king coming, oh, he's going to take all the chaos... That you're experiencing It won't last His peace will last Peace will come And it will endure Because your king, your prince Is a prince of peace That quintessential Matthew Henry If you ever read Matthew Henry He's one of the most honest commentators you'll ever read And here's what he wrote about this particular text He said, justly is he called wonderful For he is both God and man His love is the wonder of angels and glorified saints. He is the counselor for he knew the counsels of God from eternity and he gives counsel to men in which he consults after he consults our welfare. welfare. He is the wonderful counselor. None teaches like him. He is God, the mighty one. Such is the work of the mediator that no less power than that of the mighty God could bring it to pass. He is God, one with the father. As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us to God. He is the giver of peace in the heart and conscience. And when his kingdom is fully established, listen to this, men shall learn war no more. And what you'll notice about these qualities of this king is notice how transcendent they are, meaning how beyond us they are. Yet notice as well how imminent How near they are and how near he is. See, only the God of the universe is the transcendent God, holy, yet relational with his people. He's the God of all time and eternity, and he's the all-powerful God who can save. But, listen, he is so near to you, so near to us, that he can come alongside us and give us wisdom about a business deal. About how to parent our children well. About if this relationship is one we should stay in or not. If we should spend our money in that way or this way. Yet He is this God who is holy, yet He is relational. And He comes to us in the form of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. And you'll notice that this Son who is given, this this particular Son, He says this mighty God, this everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, this, this Son who is given will sit on the throne of David and will reside over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it forever. Now, this is Isaiah saying that this child is coming, this son who's going to be given. This will be the promised son of King David, whom God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 13. This, this son that God promised to David would be the son who would carry on David's family name, would carry on the kingly line of David all all through eternity, and this son would build him a house, build God a house, and and he would sit on David's throne forever. Now, not surprisingly... When the people of Israel heard that prophecy in 2 Samuel, they immediately assumed this was David's son Solomon. Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, eventually built this temple. The very first temple that we noticed in, in all of our study of the minor prophets. eventually got destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Solomon built that temple. And the people of Israel thought Solomon was the promised son to build God a house and be on the throne of David forever. The problem with that is Solomon died. And so from that moment on, they have longed for and looked for this coming king to sit on David's throne. And what Isaiah says to them in Isaiah chapter 9, in the middle of their darkness, was that this king was indeed coming. Now, just for a moment here, I want to ask you a question about this. Imagine that you're in Assyria, and you hear once again, this king is coming. You thought maybe it was fulfilled in Solomon, but Solomon's dead. Wouldn't you be asking, is God faithful to his promise? Just for a moment, the reason I ask this question, the reason why we got to ponder this for a moment, we have to ask, what does this tell us about God, this delayed Seemingly untimely response of God, this patience of God to wait and wait and wait before he ever fulfills his promise. What does this tell us about God? I mean, have you ever been in a rough spot thinking that God was going to rescue you from something or help you do something or do something for you that you thought God had promised and it didn't happen? Better yet, you ever lived your life by a certain moral code? Believing that if I do this, that'll put kind of God in a box to do this. And so I'll do these things. I'll pray every day, read my Bible every day. I'll not sin. I'll, I'll do, and God will meet me this way. And you do all these particular things and you turn and look and God is not meeting you the way that you expected God to meet you. Things didn't turn out the way that you thought. And you start wrestling with these questions. Is God, is God faithful to his promise? Or is God unfaithful to his promise? What what do these this delayed response tell us about God? Doesn't it tell us on one end that God, God sees the fulfillment of his promises and the sovereign working out of his will way differently than we do? Now, friends, that, that's really good for us as red-blooded Americans and Westerners to hear that. You know why? Because most of us kind of walk in a room, we dictate to people when to do certain things, and they put everybody on a time schedule. I've, I've gone to some of your home's parents, and I've seen the little time schedule you have for your kids every day, and you t- dictate and tell them what to do. And if they don't do that, you go, hey, how dare you violate the time? It's 7.37. You should be up at 7.30. What are we doing here? And we have this this response, I speak, you do, and we bring that in our attitude with God. And yet God doesn't work on our time frame. He hesitates. He delays. It seemingly is just patient with his promise. Imagine these people for a moment. Imagine going back into Solomon's day and these people celebrating his rise to the throne. Imagine the hope. This is the Messiah, the promised son. And look what he has done. He has built this temple. He's done everything that was promised to David, and then suddenly imagine the despair that you would feel the moment you're standing on a Jerusalem street, side by side, as chariots are carrying his body right by you. You would be crying way more than my mother cried at Elvis's funeral. You, you would be losing your mind in despair. What does this say? Would you not be disillusioned while standing on the crowded streets while Solomon, your Messiah King, is being buried? Well, even further, imagine that the candidate you wanted to win doesn't win. Wouldn't you be disillusioned? Or imagine that paycheck didn't come in like you thought it was going to do to cover the bills that you thought you needed. Wouldn't you be disillusioned? Imagine the time delay to continue to have a baby and it never happens, and you're wondering, when is God going to fulfill His word? Friends, this, this delayed moment tells us something about God that we have, we've got to let settle, we've got to let settle into our souls. God is faithful to His promises, but He operates on a way different time frame than you and I do. He may be slow about His promises, but He fulfills them in perfect timing. So here, here's the question that Isaiah 9 and the story of Isaiah's people really says something to it. Are, are you resting in God's sovereign care for you? See, because if God knew that what you desire was going to be the best thing for you, he would have given it to you already. But he probably knows that the best thing that you think is the best thing for you is what's going to very, be the right thing to destroy you. So he keeps it from you. Are you resting in his sovereign care? Are you, or are you anxious about what tomorrow may bring? Do you find yourself angry with God? And just process it angry with the perfect, omniscient, all knowing, all powerful God who does things according to his perfect will. Are you angry with that God? and his timing and are you questioning his wisdom These verses say something to us they they tell us this this promise and this delayed timing it shows us God's timing is perfect but it's not ours In the midst of darkness we always get a glimmer of light So the question when you look at Isaiah 9 you have to ask okay well then when did this get fulfilled Now we know, we go, well, it happens in Jesus. You know, I mean we just flip a few pages and we, you know, we're in the New Testament. That's when it happens. It's not, I mean, I can do that in 30 seconds. When did this happen? Well, you'll notice at the end of the verse, chapter in chapter 9, verse 7, he makes this interesting statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because it tells me God is going to do these things and it's not dependent on whether or not you or I do something. The zeal, the passion of God, the jealous love of God for His people is going to make sure this is gonna get done. The God who before the foundation of time agreed in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they were going to do something for sinful man way before sinful man was ever In the earth and on the earth, that God decided at that time we're going to fulfill something and nothing's going to stop us from getting that done. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish these things, right? So so how did this happen? Let's look at the last point, which is Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled. See, for centuries the people of Israel waited on this child. Matter of fact, they waited 700 years. i just do the math on that, right? That's more than double the time that we've been a nation. (laughs) You can't even find a building in the U.S. that's 700 years old, maybe. I would doubt it. Now, think about that. 700 years. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? You thought 30 seconds for your latte at Java Run was long, right? I mean, (laughs) right? I mean... You're going to go to lunch today, and the the Sunday crowd's going to be crazy, and you're going to be waiting to get served, and you're going to say, it took us 35 minutes to get a seat. Right? And I can just hear the, the, dead, the dead Jew during this time go, it took us 700 years waiting on a Messiah. And you can't get a seat for your chicken nuggets? I mean, what are we doing? Right? I mean, right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's like 700 years. About 300 years after Isaiah wrote these words and spoke these words, after the prophecy of Malachi, we talked about this last week, the word of God goes dark. And there's 400 years from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. It's a time of darkness. It's called the intertestamental period. There's no, there's no moment when God is speaking through his prophets. They are lost. They are darkened. They are the darkest of days for the people of Israel. But remember, don't forget, after darkness, light. And 700 years after Isaiah, an angel of the Lord spoke to Mary. And here's what he said in Luke chapter 1. He said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now does this sound familiar? When Isaiah said that a child would be born, a son would be given. Isaiah foretold of a child who would be human like a child or a son, but he's also everlasting. In other words, this would be the God-man, the son of God, one who is God-like, has everlasting qualities, one who is man-like, like a child. When the angel spoke to Mary, he told her that she would give birth to the son of the Most High. This child would be born and a son would be given to Mary and to us. Remember those words again from Isaiah, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the angel told Mary that he, this child would be given the throne of his father David, and he would sit on it forever, and there would be no end to his kingdom. And his name would be Jesus, telling us that Jesus, the one who was born to Mary, would be in the line of King David and would be the son who was promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7 and told and prophesied to us about in Isaiah chapter 9. And when Jesus came to earth, he inaugurated a kingdom that will never end. Telling us before Jesus was ever born, we are told in God's word that he fulfilled the majority of Isaiah's prophecy. He is the child to be born. He is the son given to us. He is the one who sits on David's throne and the kingdom will last forever. But that's not all about this king that we notice and remember we remember is he the transcendent one who's high and above us yet the one who can be near to us and imminent is he the one who can not only counsel us but rescue us from our disaster is he able to bring peace and calm to our fears yet be the god who's above all things and the bible's answer to this is resoundingly yes it's exactly who jesus is I mean, Jesus is the great counselor who, I mean, you marvel at these words out of James chapter 1. When James tells us that if we simply go to his throne of grace and we ask for wisdom, he distributes wisdom liberally without reproach. The God of the universe knows what an intellectual weenie you are and yet does not ever berate you for being an intellectual weenie for coming to his throne for wisdom. Think about that for a moment. This God is big and high the source of all wisdom, yet willing to give you and I small little teeny brains wisdom every moment of our day. He never berates us, never discourages us. He is the mighty God, the one who, listen to Mark chapter four, spoke to the seas and they calmed down. Yet he's the same one who can speak to our hearts and calm our fears. He spoke to the winds. He spoke to the seas. As we're going to learn on January one of 2023, when we look at Genesis one one, that God spoke and there was light. When God speaks, things happen. Why? Because His speaking voice has all authority and all power and all the universe. And that same God who can control the moon and the stars and all that can speak right to you in your moment of need. Can meet you at your very moment when you're sitting down on your chair to have a moment of prayer. That God of the universe is is right in the room with you. How astounding is that? Jesus is the one who was with God in the beginning. He is the one who was with God in the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Therefore, He's the the Father of all time and eternity. But He's also the only one who can bring lasting peace with us and God. Friend, your confusion and chaos in your life is you know from your financial problem your marriage that's not the, the biggest chaos you have the biggest lack of peace you and i have is being separated from almighty god because of our sin and jesus christ came to be the prince of peace who wrote into this world in the womb of a virgin little girl and yet also wrote into jerusalem as a mighty king that everybody bowed down before, and then he put on a cross on his shoulder and carried that cross to a hill called Golgotha to lay his life down for his people, and then three days later rose up from the dead to be the Savior of us, to bring peace with God, that we could say, as Romans 5 would say, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one, Jesus is the one, who is the Prince of Peace. So yes, is He transcendent above us? And the Almighty God absolutely is. Is He the holy God of the universe? 100%. But is He Emmanuel, God with us? You better believe it. He is transcendent above us. He is imminent and near to us. But that's not all. We're told that there is no end to the increase of His reign or his peace. I just wanna, do you know that? And I don't mean do you know that? I mean has that settled into your soul so far that no matter who sits in the White House or what happens in Ukraine, you know there's a God in the universe who's sitting on his throne controlling it all? Are you so settled in your soul about the fact that this is the one God, the only God of the universe He has the ability to bring kings down and put kings in office. He has the ability, which should absolutely stun you, that in the inner councils of the White House, God could be so much against a nation that he could curse them by bringing confusion to the people so that when you hear it in real time, you go, have these people lost their minds? That's how powerful your God is. He did it with David. He did it with Absalom. Are you so understanding that this God of the universe is in control of all things, that his kingdom is at work doing exactly what he said he would do before the foundation of time? See, 700 years prior to Jesus' coming, what did Isaiah say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Friends, meaning you can rest assured that Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is as good as done. See, as restful as Jesus' kingdom is on his shoulders, it's peaceful. There's no... In his kingdom, There's in his reign, Jesus is not chaotically working this thing out. Like, oh, i got to balance. No, he's, he's totally at peace. As peaceful as his kingdom is on his shoulders, resting on his shoulders, your heart can rest in his sovereignty. You can know with absolute certainty that when Jesus came... He came to bring peace with God. He brought righteousness before God, and He started His everlasting kingdom. And what His birth is—His birth in the time of the Roman Empire—is a moment of where that darkness is hovering over all the land. And what happens in that little baby in a manger is a bursting forth of light. So you have to ask: where, where does this fulfillment leave us? Where does it leave us? It—it it should leave us with our eyes wide open. That the truth of the truth that Jesus fulfilled, what the prophets foretold. We, we don't have time to list all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament. But Jesus is, according to Isaiah and according to Matthew and according to Luke, He is truly Emmanuel, God with us, and His name is Jesus. So listen, if, if you're here this morning, you're watching online, you're listening, maybe on a podcast later here, listen, maybe you've resisted Jesus. Maybe you've actually thought that Jesus is nothing more than just some kind of cultural, you know, ideal. Maybe he's like Mickey Mouse or Thor or the Easter Bunny. I'll leave Santa Claus out of it for Christmas season for parents, right? But this morning, listen, you've come face to face with this fact, that Jesus is actually the living king over all things who has come to save you. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ, and this morning you need to put your faith in Christ. The only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to have peace with God, the only way to have the mighty king, the mighty God on your side, is to put your faith in Jesus. We, we would plead with you, turn to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Probably most of us are people would say, well, you know, I've done that. And maybe some of you among that crowd are wondering, when will the light come for me? When will God's promises come to pass for me, like right now? I mean, when when is this going to happen now? And this morning, here's what God has done for you. He's He's brought you faith to faith, face of faith with this fact. That in Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God are yes and fulfilled. You're looking for the wrong promise. The promise has already come. Maybe you've also been challenged this morning by the fact that God's timing to fulfill his promises isn't your timing. And you need to rest in Christ's finished work for you and God's timing to fulfill what he wants to do in you. Listen, I said it earlier, if God knew that what you desire would be the best thing for you, he would have already given it to you. Maybe you need to realize that you're not the king of the universe. I have to remind myself of that daily, right? I am not the king of the universe. God is. And our response as believers is no different than a response of a non-Christian. You know that, don't you? It's to trust and believe. To trust and believe that Jesus did indeed fulfill all that the prophets foretold. And it's a great reminder. Listen, your king has never left you. (laughs) No. Your king is right here with you. He is transcendent, but he is imminent. He is near to you. He will deliver you as he promised. And this is also, isn't it, a call to worship? It's a call to give our lives to this king. The baby in the manger is the one whom the prophets foretold. He is the king of all things. And it's a call for us to bow before him, to exalt him, to serve him, to proclaim the news that he has come to a world around us that's heading straight toward the pit of hell and to show them there's hope for you in Christ. There's a better life in Jesus. You don't need to go that route. There's a a wonder in Christ that you can believe and to play our part in this ever-advancing kingdom of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is behind Jesus' ever-expanding, growing kingdom. So our response really today is we should worship Him. We should submit to Him. We should represent Him well. And listen, a great way we're going to respond as well in this and today is to take, we're going to take communion. You know what communion is, don't you? It's a moment when you're recognizing for yourself, Jesus came and died for me, rose again from the dead, and he's going to accomplish everything he said he's going to do. So when you take the communion elements today, you are looking back and you're looking ahead. It's a moment when you're identifying with your king. It's a moment of worship where you're saying, Lord, I... I take these elements in and I'm identifying myself with you and I'm bowing myself before you as my king. It's a moment when we as God's people say, we believe that Jesus did these things on our behalf and he's going to fulfill everything he promised. So as we pray this morning, let's prepare our hearts for that. And as you're in your seat before God, I'm sure God has stirred something in you about your lack of faith in an area or your struggle with patience. This morning, do business with your God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have brought us face to face with the living Christ. Are you, church, just this morning, thank God in your seat for the work of Jesus on your behalf? Thank you for sending Christ for us. Thank you that He is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that He is the Word who was with you in the beginning, that He is the wisdom of Proverbs that was with you in the beginning. Thank you that when you spoke the world into existence that Jesus was right there, the vehicle for all these things to be done. And thank you as well that He is not just transcendent, He's above us, and He's God, but He is with us. And Father, where we've been impatient with you about your promises, would you please forgive us? Where we have thought ourselves to be the king of the universe and centered this world around ourselves, would you forgive us? Would you reorient us to you being the center of all things? Where dreams or hopes have not been accomplished and we have found ourselves doubting your goodness to us, would you, would you reshape our understanding that, that all the promises of God are found in Christ? And Lord, as we take communion this morning, we pray that your spirit would reside richly with us. We pray that you'd pour out from heaven just a gift, a grace, that we would understand and see and rejoice that you have come for us, Jesus. And that Jesus is the revelation that God will fulfill everything he promised. So Father, let us not just look back Help us to look ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.